Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you. We have so much to be thankful for that you've opened our eyes and hearts to understand that we're not under the law, but we're under grace. But there are really so few that comprehend this. And uh, and so we are the ones uh, burdened for them to carry this wonderful message of your grace, your truth, your love, your perfect love in sending forth our Lord Jesus Christ to completely pay the penalty for all of our sins so very long ago. Entering into human history, intersecting with the human history of mankind, really, and uh, intersecting with uh, the world such as it was uh, ruled by the prince of this world, but not ever defeated, not ever in any way compromising our Lord Jesus without any stain of sin at all, perfectly righteously uh, did what was required for us. So, Father, it's an incredible blessing to understand this and to know the riches of your grace. And we thank you for it. Humbly thank you. It wasn't our own work that somehow led us to the truth either. It was you just intersecting with our lives and in ways that are uniquely yours. And we know, Father, that you also are able to do that in this uh, land in which we live, a land that was founded on certain principles. And those principles enabled this nation to be sustained even until now with still considerable liberties compared to other uh, nations in this world. And yet, Father, we know they're slipping rapidly away, or so it seems. And We're pretty sure we understand there what's going on. It's turning away from you, turning away from your word. uh, And uh, the nation truly has become a godless nation, at least in in those that are ruling and guiding it in so many cases. So, Father, we pray in this election upcoming that you would uh, intersect with the course of their plans to prevent them from accomplishing their desires, which is total control of our nation and its people. Father, may those that know the truth, and uh, may they be emboldened to speak it. May they be emboldened to shine forth the glories of your grace. May they be emboldened to uh, seek to open the word together with others that they may also come to know the riches of your grace. Father, there's so much on our hearts and minds. Our hearts really are broken for so many that we know and those that have not received but have turned away from the truth. And others yet, Father, others have received it, and we're so thankful for that. Father, I pray that truth wouldn't, as the prophet Isaiah uh, wrote, fall in the streets here any longer, but that your children would be instruments of light and truth. Pray that certainly for ourselves as we reach out to others. Pray that even in times of trial, we would show forth the glories of grace, for your grace is always sufficient. We know there are many unspoken requests reflected here in our group, and yet you know them all, Father. You know the depths of the hearts of your children. We pray for many uh, effects of our physical constitution suffering as a result, ultimately, of Adam's sin and how that uh, that uh, stain on the perfection of creation has been passed down from one to another to our day and our time and in ourselves as well. So... Father, I just pray that as we uh, walk in this world, we would walk with the knowledge of spiritual truth, of heavenly truth, and uh, that that might make the difference for us. There's so much uh, darkness and only the light of your truth, Father, can shatter that darkness, and we know we're the instruments for that. So, Father, as we open your word now, I pray, Father, that you would uh, remind us often that even in times of great trial and difficulty, whether that's in our nation or in our own 
lives more personally. Your grace is always sufficient and your will will always be accomplished. And may we remember that in the days to come and never forget it. You are the one, Heavenly Father, in control. And we thank you in Christ's name and amen. Well, again, we have this great privilege to open God's word. We really are, it doesn't seem to you, but we really are uh, in an introduction to Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the reason why we've taken this this time off for, from going verse by verse through Colossians is because we got near the end of chapter one. In fact, I think we got all the way to the end of chapter one of Colossians. And we read there <clears throat> these amazing words where Paul uses the word dispensation. He also uses the word mystery. In fact, he uses the word mystery uh, twice. <laughs> once in verse 26 of Colossians 1, once in in verse uh, 27 of chapter 1 of Colossians. So two consecutive verses right after he uses the word dispensation in verse 25 and uh, these are really defining verses when it comes to doctrine teaching just the dispensational teaching of the grace of god through paul uh, because what paul writes here in colossians and i'm going to read these verses quickly for you right now just so you know again exactly what it says and you'll understand a little bit better why we've taken this time to look at all the other verses and all the other passages where Paul mentions the mystery or sacred secret given to him for the benefit of the members of Christ's body. Uh, it's for the church that Paul was given by Christ himself, by the heavenly Christ uh, from heaven, the uh, teaching the doctrine concerning this sacred secret and really all that God would be doing that had never been revealed before because it wasn't for the other uh, believers living at different times. It wasn't for other dispensations, but it was for this one, which was kept secret in time past, but now revealed. Okay, so what does he write here? Colossians chapter 1. Verse 23, since you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you've heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, verse 24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind, or complete that which remains, of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So Paul was suffering on behalf of the church, he says, the body of Christ. Verse 25, whereof I made a minister. In other words, the church, which is his body, whereof I am made a minister, according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill or to com literally complete, to complete the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid. So to fill in that which has never been revealed before. The mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. So this revelation given to Paul, now completes the word of God, he says. And then verses 27 and following are critical. To whom, in other words, to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of Glory. So the mystery, the, the sacred secret given to Paul for the sake of the church had been kept secret always. Now it's revealed. So it wasn't in the Old Testament. Um, it was kept secret and now is 
unveiled, revealed through Paul for the sake of his sanctified ones, his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. So you've got the sacred secret, the body of revelation given to Paul, then this particular aspect of it, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in you Gentiles, the hope of glory. (laughs) Okay, so this is the riches of the glory of the uh, sacred secret given to Paul. So this is one of the dimensions of the sacred secret. And then he says in verse 28, whom we preach. Well, who is being preached there? Whom we preach? Just Christ? No, I would say Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what's being preached. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus or complete in Christ Jesus. So the revelation was completed uh, through Paul, and and he writes of that in other places as well, in Ephesians, for example. Uh, but also now he says it's uh, given to you to make you complete, and then those are very important words, in Christ Jesus. So the revelation of who we are in Christ Jesus, according to the grace of God and the working of Christ, which accomplished all of this in paying completely and fully for every one of our sins, past, present, and future. That is a teaching that enables us to become mature. He says that we may present every man mature or complete in Christ Jesus. And then in the last verse, concerning his own testimony, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Four different words there for work, labor, strive, working, and which worketh in the Greek, four different words. Uh, all of which point to the working of Christ in Paul, his new life working itself out in the Apostle Paul to bring forth glory to the risen Savior and to establish the church upon a foundation which shall never be uh, compromised. It is so written. This teaching stands written. It shall never be uh, destroyed by the enemy. The enemy will never be allowed to destroy it. It has never been allowed to destroy it, even though believers who have uh, down through centuries and also unbelievers down through centuries have preserved these words, not knowing that it was the Lord God who was preserving them and all the word of God, of course, for our benefit. Okay, so today, therefore, we continue that study that we've been engaged in for some time. We're getting close to the end of that. I thought we'd finish today, but it will be next time. Looking at each of those dimensions of the revelation of the mysteries. So we're in the last of those dimensions here, which is the realm of spiritual warfare. Of course, the issue is always what is God doing, because that uh, pretty much defines, at least in reverse fashion, what the enemy is doing. What is the enemy doing? He's thwarting, if he can. He's using all of his talents, all of his abilities, all of those uh, emissaries, spiritual forces, uh, angels, demons, and so forth, uh, to accomplish his purpose in this world system and to prevent believers, if from understanding, really, the essence of grace. What Satan can't prevent anyone from being saved, but he certainly can influence them so that then their eyes are taken off of grace and placed on other things, which are then destructive of the fruit-bearing, which is so beneficial and so honors and glorifies Almighty God. So... Uh, 
Spiritual warfare is about how we may be victorious over the attacks of the enemy today because the enemy is operating against what the enemy understands to be the work of God. Now, Satan doesn't perfectly understand, of course, what God is doing. And so he does his best to try to thwart the work of God and conflicts with what he's hearing and seeing of us, certainly, to try to shut down our ministry, shut down our testimony, uh, silence us uh, who know the truth, that we might keep silence and therefore that the, the light of the glory of the mystery may not shine forth and influence the hearts of many according to the desire and purpose of God, right? So that's where we are here um, in Ephesians, uh, because that's where this revelation of spiritual warfare is given by the Apostle Paul. All of Ephesians builds up to this. Every chapter builds up to chapter 6, where this revelation of our heavenly warfare is found. Now, we looked last time at this. We saw that our spiritual warfare is heavenly in character, not earthly. And that seems so contrary to what uh, what we see day by day and hour by hour. And some of us here earlier were talking about what the enemy is doing in the world and specifically what he's doing here in this nation. And uh, it's easy to look at that, these earthly matters, and think that's where the battles are. But what we need to understand, Paul says, is that that's not really where the battle is. The battle is heavenly in character. It is spiritual forces in the heavenlies that are aligned with Satan, okay? And that influence matters here on the earth to whatever degree they're allowed to do so. And if you want to learn a lot about how that has worked in the past, back in the history of Israel, just read the last chapters in Daniel's prophecy, and you will see so much about how these heavenly forces operate. But God also works, and his angels work, even his archangels, and ultimately his purpose is accomplished. Satan will never be the ultimate victor. He will win the battles, and uh, and he will uh, win wars, but he will not when ultimately he has been defeated once and for all through Christ in his great work on the cross and then in his glorious resurrection. When Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised above all principalities and powers, mights and dominions. Satan knows full well that he's a defeated foe, but he will not stop trying to surround himself with as many as possible. Why? Because they will worship him and not the Lord God. They will glorify Satan and not our Lord Jesus. So our spiritual warfare, Paul says, is heavenly. I'll just read a couple of verses. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, literally in the heavenlies. So Paul says here very strongly that there is a way to stand when you're in the thick of the battle. But if you do not properly prepare and take advantage of what the Lord has provided to you in the way of defensive armament and also offensive weapons. If you do not properly prepare, then you will fall. But he says, you may be strong in the Lord and the power of his might if you put on the whole armor of God, and then you may be able to stand even against the strategies and methods of the devil. Think about that. Wow. 
to stand against him and not fall, even in the thick of the battle. Okay, so that's uh, the introduction there to the section on spiritual warfare. Then he goes down in verses 13 and 14, mentions the first part of our defensive enablements. So the Lord has provided these. We're supposed to learn, like any person in the military, you go to basic training, why do you do that? And first of all, to strengthen yourself in mind, heart, and spirit, right? And it's a major part of basic training. And then to learn to use the uh, the defensive capabilities that have been provided for you, and then to use also the offensive tools that have been designed to give you the advantage in the course of battle. Okay, so same here. Spiritual enablings, what are they? Okay, verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. That's a general statement, uh, talking about everything he's going to talk about later in these verses. The whole armor of God, learn to take it on, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The evil day, what is that? That's the time of the attack. You're not always under the same attack. Yes, certain things are with us always. The, The flesh is certainly with us always. But spiritual attacks are not constant every moment of every day. They come upon us when we least expect it. And it's at that time when the whole armor of God needs to be fully utilized. Okay, the evil day, the that special perverse moment when uh, the enemy finds us to be, he thinks, weak enough that he may bring a successful attack against us. So verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. These two words, truth and righteousness, are fundamental in Paul's revelation concerning the sacred secret given to the church. What Paul writes about truth and what Paul writes about righteousness make all the difference for our understanding. If we do not comprehend them, we can't stand, certainly, in, against the wiles of the enemy spiritually. Many do not understand them, and they're at a great uh, disadvantage, therefore. Okay, so what he says is that the truth needs to be known. Uh, These translators, they don't always reflect the original language precisely. Sometimes there are definite articles in the Greek, and they leave them out in the English, for example. And that's very uh, damaging, actually, because Paul here has a definite article in in front of that word truth and also in front of the word righteousness. Okay, so what truth is it? Not just any truth, not truth in general, not truth in its character, but specific truth, the truth. That's what we need to grasp onto and then put on the breastplate of the righteousness. And I spent time last time focused in on what that righteousness is. It is the righteousness of Christ himself imputed to our account. Okay, so um, I think that... uh, I'll say a little more about that later as we go on. But certainly, without that righteousness, we have no place to stand. Because what is the enemy going to do? The enemy is going to prove to us that we fail in many ways to live up to God's perfect standard. In other words, it is unrighteousness that characterizes our life. Uh, that's what the enemy will convince us of. But if you do not have conviction in mind, heart, and spirit regarding your own righteousness before God because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and his completed work on Calvary's cross, if you do not have that conviction, you cannot stand against the attacks of the enemy. And that's what this is all about. And that's why it mentions 
the breastplate. So as I said last time, in ancient times, the the uh, armament included a significant uh, two-part kind of armor that is put on down over our heads, covers the front of our bodies and the back, and goes down pretty far. And that's why he mentions uh, truth here and righteousness in the way that he does using this analogy. Now, one thing about analogies, um, we're never to, I remember this so well from seminary, one of the first things we were taught in a, what they call hermeneutics, in other words, the principles of biblical interpretation, which is that you should never try to make an analogy walk on all fours. <laughs> in other words, don't try to read something into every aspect of it, uh, sort of uh, to infinite detail. Many do that today with, in trying to interpret uh uh, parables, for example, or uh, uh, Old Testament prophecy that they think shouldn't be taken literally and they're trying to read all kinds of things into it, or every little detail uh, in the structure of uh, the tabernacle, for example, right? Uh, trying to bring some kind of spiritual truth into every aspect of it. Uh, that is a hopeless enterprise. But the Word of God does reveal many parallels, and figures of speech are very useful. And here we have an analogy, so an analogy with uh, actual armor. It says, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. The truth, the body of doctrine revealed through Paul, the breastplate of the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, in other words, we are in Christ Jesus, and how does God see us there? He sees us righteous. Not because, personally speaking, we are bringing forth acts of righteousness all the time. No, but because he sees us through Christ and Christ's completed sacrifice as the innocent, perfect Lamb of God that truly did pay the penalty for every one of our sins. And not only past tense, not only present tense, but also future tense. So we are in Christ Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, where Christ himself is seated. How does Father see us? The Father sees us perfect, complete in Christ Jesus. He sees us, in fact, as righteous as Christ himself. And you may say that's impossible. And yet that's exactly the truth that Paul reveals in many, many places. Last time I went to Isaiah 59, because I told you Paul had in mind Isaiah 59 when he wrote these words, and he certainly did. <laughs> the issue uh, back then for Isaiah was that the nation had no intercessor. They were caught up in sin. Uh, in fact, truth, uh, he wrote, had fallen in the street. And <laughs> true equity, true righteousness couldn't enter because uh, truth had fallen in the street. And he says the real problem is they had no intercessor. And so only the Lord himself could be the intercessor because he was the only one who was perfectly righteous, right? And he was the only one, therefore, who could bring salvation. And so in verse 16, Isaiah 59, it says, he saw, this is the Lord, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. Okay, so Paul is writing about what Israel didn't have. There was a hope, there was a promise someday the elect of Israel would have that, and they will, and they will someday, but we already have it now. Praise God. Under grace, we already have it. Now, Paul writes about this in a lot of places. 
and um, we don't have time to go into it because I want to get on to the next aspects of the defensive preparations here that are revealed in Ephesians chapter 6. But don't forget the verses that so changed Luther's Martin Luther's life were in Romans 1 and in other places, several places. Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul writes this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is the key verse. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Therein, meaning in the gospel that Paul preached. Okay, therein is the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And then he quotes, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You may have wondered about that. What does that mean, the just shall live by faith? <laughs> what does the word just mean? See, this verse, this, this verse is not saying we have to prove our faith by our works. What this verse is saying is that those who are already righteous in the sight of God should also live by faith, and they should live it out by faith, right? But you can't live it out by faith if you're not already righteous. The just are the righteous ones. Just is just a different word for the word righteous, okay? Very simple. should be very simple. So Luther had that verse sort of stuck in his mind and heart for a while and finally uh, saw the truth and the glory of it, and it delivered him from the bondage of false teachings regarding the salvation of God by grace through faith alone. It delivered him from the bondage to the law in many ways, not in every way. Luther still was bound in so many ways, but but he stood above and uh, changed the course of history, as we all know. Okay, now in many places, Paul mentions this righteousness um, and I don't have time to read them all. You can look in the notes and get the list of verses. So, Romans 4, 5. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for, for righteousness. What? The one who doesn't work? He doesn't say the one that works really hard to try to keep the law but fails. No, he says the one that worketh not. So he's not bringing forth the works that the law demands. Well, the Gentiles were not in a position to do that. Very straightforwardly, they didn't even have the law. <laughs> okay, so Paul has them in mind, very much so, but even Jews. Him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth, I mean, in other words, that declares righteous the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So the faith brings the imputation of righteousness. Okay, enough on that. I want to now move quickly ahead because what we now see, and I'd like Linda to read these verses for us, because this, this conviction of our righteousness in Christ is so fundamental. I just want Linda to read those four verses out of Romans chapter 5, where this is made so very, very clear today. And then later I want Lydia to read again the one verse, verse 17. But first of all, Linda, Romans chapter 5, verses 16 through 19. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received abundance grace, as of the gift of righteousness, shall reign in the life of one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense 
of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Those two verses, uh, all four are significant, and even those that go before that, but verses 18 and 19, it's one offense that's in Adam that brought judgment upon all, okay? Adam's one act of rebellion is what the focus is on there, verse 18, that brought judgment upon all men to condemnation. One act of righteousness, that's Christ's, okay, brought justification of life, okay? So Christ's one act, that's him offering himself for our sins, paying the full penalty. That one act of righteousness is then imputed to our account. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Lord Jesus offered himself in obedience to the Father, right, and his will and his great love. Through the obedience of one, that's that one act of our Lord Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Notice he switches from all to many because otherwise you would have universal Salvation somehow <laughs> implied by these verses. So oh, Paul had an amazing way with the Spirit of God giving him the very words to teach this precious truth. So that brings us now to what we rather quickly will look at because it's very simple. It's extremely simple um, that we must protect also not only our bodies and so forth here as he's already listed by the defensive enablements given, but there are also other defensive enablements given to protect our feet and our our body in general. And then next time, we'll see the provision for offensive, the weapon God gives us to wage war offensively. So, but you can't wage war offensively unless you've already been able to defend yourself from all the attacks, okay? Remember, the attacks are coming from every side, right? If you're not able to defend yourself from those with armaments like shields and so forth, as we'll look at now, then you'll fall. You won't even have opportunity to use that one offensive tool, which is what? The sword of the spirit, which is the word, the utterance of God. And we're going to look at that one next time. So first of all, we must protect our feet and bodies. Okay, uh, I'll read these verses for you. Ephesians 6, verses 15 and 16. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Again, it's the faith, definite article. The body of doctrine that's so critically needed to be understood. Wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Okay, so Paul's giving hope here for the, the uh, warrior in training. And he says, well, your feet are rather important. Now, as I understand it, in fact, we used to live in Natick. Massachusetts, and in Natick is the Natick Labs. The Natick Labs is where the (laughs) Army develops uh, these various uh, defensive capabilities for our military, and one of the major parts of that are the boots on the ground, right? And so here he says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's very interesting. He's thinking about our feet. What do our feet do? They carry us wherever we go. Paul is imagining the soldier ultimately needing to bring forth the truth and to be a light in the darkness, right? And to really pierce the darkness with the light of the truth 
of the grace of the glory of God, right? Uh, that is the ultimate uh, outreach for any believer with a testimony for the Lord, right? So we need our feet for that purpose. That's how we get around. He says that feet need to be shod with the what kind of boots do we need, really? Well, really, spiritually, he says, we need the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's rather interesting. What is the gospel of peace? Uh, <laughs> well, what does Paul write at the beginning of every letter <laughs> and at the end of most of them? Grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, unbelievers don't have peace. They may think they have it through meditation or some other kind of false teaching uh, or they don't care one way or the other. So they're so caught up in themselves, but they have no peace. And you easily see that in talking with them. Uh, they have no peace. But Paul's writing here not about that kind of peace. He's talking about peace with God. They have no peace with God. In fact, they stand under the condemnation of Almighty God, right? Okay, so our feet need to be prepared with the gospel of peace because that's what we're taking. What is that gospel? It is the gospel of the grace of God, of course. There isn't any other any other gospel that Paul says uh, we have been given and that we mu must uh, promote that gospel, which is not another, <laughs> as uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. The grace of Christ unto another gospel of another kind, but it's not another of the same kind. <laughs> There's only one true gospel today, one good news, that is the gospel of the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes on and mentions the shield. What does he say there about the shield? And taking the shield of the faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So he's imagining many attacks from various demonic forces. And how do we defend ourselves? What is the nature of those attacks? They're lies, okay? And only the truth is a defense. And it is the faith. And I do not believe he there is referring to our personal faith. Certainly we need personal faith all along. There's no question about that taking God at his word. That's what this whole section is about, right? But the shield is the faith, the body of, of, of truth, the, the faith which we uh, have been uh, delivered once and for all uh, through Paul. So that's uh, what we need. So you have to have an understanding of what's been revealed. And so Paul writes about these things in all of his letters, right? So th these things are all dispensationally significant. It all relates to uh, the way in which God's working today, the way the enemy works to, to, to thwart the plan of God, and how we ourselves are caught in, on the battle line and uh, very much uh, often under attack. Oh, my. Wonder, beautiful, wonderful teaching here. And then we get to this wonderful verse 17. In one verse, now remember in the Greek there are no verses, there are no chapters, divisions, no verse divisions. There aren't even any word divisions. In ancient times the manuscript materials were very, very scarce and valuable. Okay? In fact, uh, back even in in, uh, in English history, it's been said that the value of a manuscript of, of the uh, New Testament um, was equal to the cost of building London Bridge. <laughs> 
that's how valuable even in that day paper was so not everybody had the bible like today or, or electronically it seems to cost nothing right okay so the words were put together the letters what right next to each other and yet you knew the language well you could easily uh, understand what was written right but sometimes there's an issue as to where the words should be divided and that has led to different uh, interpretations on occasion right okay so here he says in the first half of the verse as it's been uh, marked out by the translators here take the helmet of salvation and then he'll go on to mention the sword of the spirit okay that that then transition is from the defensive to the offensive part of our enablement so for now the helmet of salvation what is the helmet of salvation okay well the helmet is to protect the mind right and what does the mind need protection from well all the lies of the enemy of course right but uh, there's one very central area that needs protection in our minds and that is the conviction regarding our own salvation and what is the enemy teaching the enemy is teaching works in some way or other and if a person is already saved by grace through faith then we've already believed that our works were never going to make the difference and we have taken christ as our righteousness all right and believed on him in his death burial and resurrection so believers are not going to become unbelievers but they may very well be taught that once having been saved by grace through faith we now must prove ourselves through works and we must in fact endure to the end that was something christ taught his disciples and for the tribulation period that is an essential part of the teaching is they don't have salvation the way we do at least not then yet okay okay so so what does paul teach about this salvation and uh, how can it protect our our minds as a helmet if we possess the proper understanding about what does he say well i'd like uh, Anne to quickly read then and we'll quickly read these verses and uh, ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 so this leads up to chapter 7 and chapter 2 of paul's letter to the ephesians very very commonly understood verses and for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god thank you and so the salvation is part of this gift the faith as well but but the the point of this is that we didn't earn our salvation by our works it was a gift okay in other words you believe the gospel and christ's righteousness is imputed to your account so you, you possess then the righteousness of of christ and at the very moment the holy spirit comes to indwell the very life of christ uh, becomes part of our uh, our being uh, and in fact then we are saved uh, there are more verses about this uh, that are critically important, and many, really. I made a list. Uh, you can look in the notes for that. I'd like Lydia to read, though, again, verse 17 of chapter 5, because there Paul brings together uh, these things so nicely also. So Lydia, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. I'll pinch here for Lydia. For if by once one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Okay, so the righteousness is at the very center of it all, and it is a gift, okay? So Ephesians 2.8 said the salvation was the gift. Now we see the righteousness is a, is a gift. 
Okay, they're free gifts, not based upon our works. And then, Patty, I'd like you to read some verses we actually uh, say back and forth every morning and have for some years now in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Okay, praise God. So it's the grace of God that brings salvation. It's the grace of God that teaches us then, once we've been saved, it teaches us to bring forth fruit unto God, right? Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world while we are looking for that next great event in our history, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, the grace of God brought our salvation to us, so there's no works involved in that. There's fruit-bearing, that's another thing altogether, and very important. But what is it that teaches us to bear fruit? It's not the law. It's the grace of God. And if it's not that motivation, those works will be burned. So that's the bottom line on how grace is operating with our works. We bring forth many works that are not based upon the grace of God. Amen. Sadly so. Okay, then there's this verse, and I'd like Dana to read it for us. It's sort of a culminating uh, verse uh, here in our study today. But uh, Dana, would you please read from Acts chapter 28, verse 28, where Paul is drawing the curtain on the Jews there in Rome who have refused his message concerning... Known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. So Paul went synagogue to synagogue faithfully, presenting Israel's Messiah to them, and they rejected for the most part. Some usually did believe, like in Philippi, right? Or Corinth. In Corinth, even the ruler of the synagogue believed. Immediately left the synagogue and they met then in the house next door, right? And it became the church in Corinth. It's its first location there. Okay, so Paul says there, and this is him drawing the curtain. After this point, he will no longer go to the synagogues, I'm sure, but to the Gentiles still, of course. And that is, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is, in other words, is now sent to the Gentiles. They will hear it. Not you, Israel, not you, Jews. There's blindness on your hearts. What a sad, sad situation. So Paul uses this word salvation in a very interesting way. He actually uses all three tenses of the word, past tense, present tense, and future tense. He uses the word salvation in all those ways. Salvation in the past tense, and we looked at some verses for that, like in Ephesians 2.8, that refers to our sins that have been completely paid for. Otherwise, there would be unavoidable penalties for all eternity, right? Uh, but they've been paid for completely. That's the past tense of salvation. We stand saved. We are saved because of what Christ has accomplished. Okay, And now his righteousness has been imputed to our accounts. Then there's the present tense of salvation. 
And that's what spiritual warfare is all about. It's also what Paul writes about in regarding the Christian life and, uh, and walking by the Spirit. We looked at that already several weeks ago, Galatians chapter 5, Romans chapter 7, right? So there's the power of sin still dwelling within us, and we need deliverance over that. That's uh, the power of sin from the inside. It's not the attacks of uh, spiritual forces on the outside, but rather the power still on the inside dwelling within us. The sin nature still is present. So we are able to be. So there's a provision of victory over that. Past tense, fully paid for, completed. Present tense, there's a provision for our victory. Then future tense, there's a promise. There's a promise that sin will be eradicated once and for all in our experience forever. And that will happen, of course, when we're caught up into heaven's glory and the resurrection or the transformation, uh, if we're still alive when the Lord calls us, will present us having fully reached in every way the uh, the goal that God had for us, that we might spend eternity then uh, reflecting his power and glory most wonderfully. So there'll be no sin in the picture at all then. So past tense of salvation, present tense, future tense. We have been saved. We are being saved. If we take advantage of the provisions God has made, and we shall be saved from even the presence of sin. Ultimately, there are verses that we could go to for all of those, but don't have the time today. So let's close. The helmet of salvation, Paul says, is most critical. It's a significant aspect of the defensive side of our spiritual warfare because it protects the mind against the enemy's attack. How important is the mind? What happens when our mind is captured by the lies of the enemy or just the events of the world around us? What happens when our mind focuses on those things and not on our standing before God as those who are righteous, as those who are saved, past tense, right? Is the enemy able, therefore, to confuse us to the degree that we now feel we have to somehow create some new kind of salvation? And Paul just simply says you need to work it out uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, right? Ephesians 2, 9 and 10, Galatians 5, right? Uh, But if we think we have to prove our salvation to others by good works, we're already falling uh, into uh, confusion. So we possess this salvation already. We can never lose it by our works since works were never needed to gain it. It was a free gift indeed. Well, he immediately goes from the helmet of our salvation, our eternal salvation, to the only offensive weapon provided but it has many applications, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praise the Lord for that wonderful provision. We'll look at that next time, Lord willing, and also how prayer, how prayer is so important as we continue to wage spiritual warfare as the occasion demands. I would hope and trust victoriously using all the provisions that God has made under grace. Oh, grace is wonderful. God has provided so much more than we ever realized. If only we would read and learn what Paul has written. Amen. 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 Well, any questions or comments? It's a good time for that. Hedgen, thank you for the uh, the sermon. It is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, that the uh, the translation that didn't have the uh, definite articles. Right. So I was curious 
and uh, do a little quickie research. And I found that the first, very first English translation was from Wycliffe in the 14th century. That was based on the Latin translation. Of course, you know, Latin doesn't have a different article. So, so there you go. So there was no different article in Wycliffe. Then who was second one doing that? That was uh, uh, Qingdiao. The Qingdiao, even though he translated directly from Greek, I'm pretty sure he referenced Qingdiao Wycliffe. So now Qingdiao doesn't have the article. A definite article either. So not a surprise. The King James copy 80 percent plus from the King James also doesn't have a definite article. Now you look at most of the translation, they don't have a definite article either, except the uh, the Young's uh, literal translation. Yeah, Young's literal. Yep. Very good point, Lewis. Uh, and you see, definite articles do make a difference. Yes, Latin has no definite articles. None. Greek has definite articles, and they are there for the Holy Spirit to use in inspiring the truth of God. And in fact, I believe Greek was chosen by God, uh, created as a language, in fact, for this purpose, because Hebrew also does not really have articles the way Greek does. So with Greek, uh, these kinds of uh, teachings can be very well uh, communicated compared to the other languages, yeah. And English has both definite articles and indefinite, but uh, translators seem to ignore that. Any other comments this morning? I can make a comment. Hey, Jim. Hi, everybody. Yeah, so yesterday, you know, I think Lewis mentioned we were at this um, concert that Lydia gave, and it was in an Adventist church. And um, the thing is, listening to the service, um, it just... um, it's so much more reassuring and um, peace-giving to know um, that Christ is within, as opposed to protective God and protective angels around. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, you know, that's God and protective angels around sounds great. I like it too, but it doesn't have that peace-giving. Okay, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that message, I, it's just really a wonderful encouragement. Well, it makes all the difference to know what we have within. In fact, that's the whole point of what we've been looking at here, isn't it? Oh, my. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's a major problem of today's culture because the words were not properly propagated. So when you hear people praying, praying for God's angels' protection, praying for the arrival of the Holy Spirit, I was like, why is this? <laughs> Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. That sounds great. Uh, but it's people are just totally confused by the gospel. But more than confused, I mean, it's a dependency aspect of it, right, rather than an empowering aspect, right? Christ within, the, the God within. Yes, but what do you hear taught everywhere is that uh, somehow we have to ask God to do this, ask God to do that, and then he will do it if we believe, if we have faith. Or if we tithe. tithe. (laughs) I mean, I'm in a number of Bible studies, and that's what I I hear pretty much everybody saying all the time. Is that not correct? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's much more, this is much more reassuring, like, you know, uh-uh. It's a, a good, great encouragement. Thank well, you. It's, it's a Satan's plot to rob the believers' true joy and rob uh, God's power that can manifest in us to really yes. reinforce the fruit, you know, just like what you said earlier. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, let's stop at this point. I'll uh, close in prayer. I think uh, we've had a great study here. Next time, I'm Really looking forward, uh, Lord willing, that we get to the one offensive tool that the Lord has given us, which is so important to understand, (laughs) so very important to understand, and then how prayer uh, relates directly to our waging of the spiritual warfare. Because that's how Paul finishes that section there in Ephesians chapter 6, and that's how he finishes his great letter to the Ephesians. So I take it that's the most 
The first part of the letter and the last part are the most significant. Father God, thank you for gathering us uh, today and for this great teaching, this wonderful teaching of your grace and its power. Father, I just, every time I open your word, and I'm sure all of us here can give testimonies and have already on other occasions of how you've opened our heart to the truth of grace and how that's changed us once and for all. It's taken us from one course of living to another course altogether. And yet there are many challenges, Father, and oh, there are so many attacks that come against us on, on every side, not only from spiritual forces in the heavenlies, but here in this world too, and even within us physically. So, Father, there are uh, many unspoken requests uh, each of us have. And uh, we know that your grace is always sufficient. So I thank you, Father, for blessing us so greatly by your precious word of truth that has transformed us. And, Father, thank you for the great gifts that you've provided to us that enable us even to stand uh, and not fall and to be lights in the darkness, to be vehicles of truth that even pierces the darkness. If only we would have confidence in that regard, that the word of truth that we speak is the tool. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it's written. May we really believe that and take that to heart. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name and amen.